0: Thank you for tuning in to Cobblestone Community Church today. We hope this message blesses you. If you need prayer for anything, please email us at prayer at Now here's the message. I'm so grateful that the Lord provided somebody who was listening to the Holy Spirit and got all these words down, and they have survived these 20 centuries since. I've also been really eager to be with you all today. Uh, I don't know every one of you, but I've been eager to be with you. It seems like with Snowmageddon and all the cancellations, I'm like there's just more isolation, more separation. Like, we've been doing this for two years, yeah. plus uh, Kay is in Hildenhead, living the dream. And if I can't be with her, I'd love to be with y'all. So here we are. We're going to be heading into Matthew 25, as Andrew said, and uh, I've noticed. <laughs> I don't know if you're willing to confess to it, but I'm going to speak it out loud anyway. I sense this church breathing a sigh of relief that we are finally into the New Testament. Huh? Right? Like, ha, ha, ha. No more wars and famines and pestilences and exiles. No more dreams and visions from Daniel. We're done with the scary stuff. No, we're not. No, we're not. Matthew 25 has a passage that before I was saved, terrified me, scared the bejevers out of me. And even as a young Christian, it haunted me in a Holy Spirit kind of way. And even now, 39 years into this faith walk, there are still some things, oh, wow, Lord, you really meant that? Yes, he really meant that. So yeah, we'll be in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. As you're looking that up, let's pray. Father, we've come to worship you. To listen to the avalanche coming off the roof. Thank you, Lord. I hope we get to keep the gutters. Yes, yes. Oh, wow. The writer to the Hebrews said, you uphold the universe by the word of your power. And when it comes down, that's by your word too. Lord, with your word, shape us and mold us today. Teach us, Jesus, how to come humbly into the presence of God of your mighty, awesome, perfect word. Jesus, every one of us walked in here this morning with things we thought were true that aren't, that aren't true. Lord, would you, would you take away those, those things that aren't true, that we've held as true, and give us truth? Lord, would you fill us full of every bit of truth you have for us today? Jesus, you you gave us a name for the Holy Spirit in John 16. You called him the Spirit of truth, and you promised that he would guide us into all the truth. Would You take today and in these next minutes and exactly the truth you have for every believer in this room. Bring it, Lord Jesus. Bring it, Lord Jesus. We're here humbly in your presence to receive. We'll go out of here later to glorify you, having more truth than we came in with according to your promise. We'll do offer up our adoration, our affection, all of our highest expectations in your name. Amen. All right, Matthew 25, verse 31. Jesus is speaking there, so it's a big deal, as if the rest of Scripture is, and it is. But Jesus is speaking here, and he's wrapping up a section of Matthew's gospel called the Olivet Discourse. Okay, There are five discourses in Matthew's gospel This one, the Olivet Discourse, is by far the edgiest. Some of you have heard me use the term, no joke Jesus. Uh Uh-huh. This is no joke Jesus at the top of his game. He is not messing around. Look at what he says in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus is talking about himself. Son of man was a title. He, he laid on, him, on himself very often. There are reasons for that. We won't go into right now. Yes, he's talking about himself in the third person. That's okay. He's Jesus. He gets, to, he gets to do that. Please keep listening. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. Okay, now there's something here, the last phrase of that verse, but the goats on the left. There's something really important about Jesus' word choice right here, and I don't want us to miss it. When he says, but the goats on his left, why is that a but and not an and? If Jesus were only trying to figure out how many sheep and how many goats he's got, he might have said, well, and the king will set the, the, the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. But it's not an and, it's a but. You see what's happening here, or about to happen, is he's about to describe something that makes being on the king's right hand really, really good and being on the king's left hand not good at all. I don't want to miss this. So we hear, we hear what Jesus wants, wants to say. Oop, page turn. <laughs> Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's what he says to the ones on the right. Now, for the sake of of picking up on the contrast, I want to skip down to verse 41 and see what he says to those on his left. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, please, Jesus, tell us how you really feel. You see the contrast there? This, this is a, a, a no-doubter. I don't think we really get a great idea of what it means to be blessed, and we probably don't even stop to think about what it means to be cursed. When Jesus says blessed to the ones on his right, he means something way more than, oh, goody, there is hazelnut creamer in the fridge. And cursed is not just a little less pleasant than blessed. Have you caught the weight of what Jesus is saying and describing here? He's talking nothing less than heaven and hell. Blessed and cursed. If you've read Matthew 25 and noticed the parables that lead into this passage here, you'll see a subtle difference in how Jesus leads into those parables. And he says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. What's Jesus describing with this right hand, left hand thing? He's describing the judgment. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like. So as a pastor, I I really hope there's a question that's just burning a hole in your pocket right now. And you can't go another minute without finding out what standard is the king using? When he goes right, right, left, 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 right, what, what measurement is he using? Well, When you're searching scripture, And you want to know reasons? You want to to know whys and wherefores? You look for those reason words, those because words. You're looking for stuff like for and therefore. You're looking for so and so that and good old because. I love because. So let's go back into the passage here, beginning at verse 34, back up there. And this time we're going to roll right into the becauses. Then the king will say to those on his right, Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then Jesus rolls right into the contrast. Verse 41. then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And just in case there was any lingering confusion whatsoever, Jesus gives the summary statement of this discourse. He says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And that right there is what terrified me for the first 22 years of my life. You see, as I was growing up, I knew a lot about Jesus. And there were a lot of people around me who loved Jesus. Um, especially in my grandparents' home, there was a lot of Jesus' words floating about and, and, and my grandma singing at the, at the kitchen sink and stuff like that. There was no way I was going to escape the words of Jesus. And I'd hear something like this and think, I I cannot be headed toward a good end because of what Jesus said. Now in those days, I look back on my unsaved self and I've got to confess to you, church, I was the least merciful person I've ever known. You did not want to mess up if I was anywhere around. So hard all the time. So when I hear something like this, yeah, I'd get get terrified when I bothered to think about it all. It didn't make me any less, any more merciful, but it did make me more scared. So, you know, sometime later on, at at age 22, I started loving Jesus on purpose. And I started to, to, I began to understand, but still that passage haunted me, as I said, in in a Holy Spirit kind of way. And I began thinking on this like, oh, i got to figure this out. Like, Here's some of the questions that rolled around in my mind. Like, If I pass up even one chance to perform a work of mercy, does that stick me over on the king's left? Or what about the opposite possibility? If, if, if I manage to do just one act of mercy in my lifetime, does that give me a place on his right? Ah, oh, those extremes, you know what I do with the extremes, right? I lop them off in search of the truth. So I'm kind of in the middle thinking, well, maybe he meant one act of mercy in each category. Feed one hungry person, clothe one naked person, visit one prisoner. Like that, that, That's how odd my thought processes were as a young, immature, yet maturing Christian. The thing that bothered me most had little to do with my thought processes and how I interpreted Matthew 25, 31 to 46, The thing that bothered me most was even with salvation, I could not figure out how Jesus was going to take the least merciful person I've ever known and turn him into a sheep. And maybe, just maybe, the reason you're here this morning is you're wondering something like that about yourself. I used to be a big fan of scare tactics. Long ago, not so much anymore. These are Jesus' words, not mine. I only get to use them for the purposes he intended. If you're a believer here right now, and you're haunted, as I've been haunted by these words in Matthew 25, we're going to call that what it is. That is Holy Spirit conviction. And we're going to find out what the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, has for you today. That's way different than a scare tactic. When Jesus got me and, and, and I began to receive the benefits of, of salvation, there are many, there are many, many, many. One of my favorites is what 1 Corinthians 2.16 says that every believer gets. The mind of Christ. The ability to think like Jesus. Have I engaged the mind of Christ at every opportunity? No. No. And neither of you. But for some reason, that maybe in heaven I'll, I'll find out. For some reason, 39 years ago, God set in motion a plan that would bring me right here, right now, this morning, urging every believer in this room to engage the mind of Christ now so we can understand what Jesus was saying to us in Matthew 25. We need the answers to two questions. What is salvation? And how do acts of mercy relate to salvation? I'm going to take the first one first, because this is the simplest. What is salvation? Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how it works. It will not happen any other way. God, in his sovereign, limitless grace, decided to give you the faith, even to believe on Christ, and no one but Christ, for salvation. That's how it has happened for every Christian who has been or ever will be. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. End this, end this story. Now, I could do assurance of salvation all day long. And some of you have seen me do sal- assurance of salvation all day long. We could do that, but it is really as simple as that. And still, God gives us this thing that kind of tickles our curiosity, right? Even, even, in, a, even in a Holy Spirit kind of way, like, wait a minute, didn't verse 10 say something about good works? Yes. Yes, it did. What about those, those good works? Well, that takes us into the second question. How do acts of mercy relate to salvation? Ah, okay. Well, what are good works? Good works could be a lot of things because a lot of good things need to be done. Since we're in Matthew 25 today, we're going to look most closely at these things I've been calling acts of mercy. I like the term mercy works. It kind of flows a little bit better, and I think it describes the same thing. It's, it's, it's deeds, of, deeds of compassion that are effective for the relief and the encouragement and development of people who wouldn't be able to pull those off for themselves in that season of life or in that moment. And, and you know, we all get to trade around, right? Part of being the strong one is you don't ever get to claim the title of strong one. We'll probably take a look at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, maybe at the end of this, if I don't just run completely out of time. Those are mercy works. How then does that relate to, to salvation? As we're looking at the king and what he's going to be doing on the day of judgment. We're going, Whoa, he's got a thing he's, he's using here in a measurement that he, that he holds to. Well, in Matthew 25, at first glance, it looks like Jesus is setting up a different standard, like he's moving the goalposts. In Matthew 25, as he's describing what that's going to be like, it looks like the good works are the ticket to heaven. Hold on. We have the whole of Scripture. And the whole of Scripture, the Bible, from cover to cover, will bear out this next statement I'm about to make. The people on the king's right aren't saved because of the good works. They do the good works because they are saved. Glance back at verse 10 in Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In the same sovereign grace that that God used to, to, to give you the faith to believe on Christ for salvation, in that same sovereign choice he made good works for each believer to do. Notice that it happened before salvation. That's how sovereign God is. And I know, church, that is a subject we just struggle with so much. The idea that God would choose who will and who will not be saved. Well, good luck figuring that out. And a dear friend said to me once, now, John, you know, uh, God will never mess with a man's free will. And I should have laid off of it, but I didn't. I said, yeah, whose idea was that? And I went, oh, no, wait, timing is everything. Timing is today. That's really how it works out, church. Because we struggle so much with that idea, there are other questions that pop up in our minds. Glory, hallelujah, for other questions that pop up in our minds. We get a couple of questions, and we think we may be chasing the answers. Those lead to more questions. So here's, here's the thing. We got a couple more questions that pop up. Like, okay, well, if good works are evidence of saving faith, how much evidence is enough? We're not touching that one because it only starts a debate that has no end. How much is enough? What's the right kind of stuff? What's not the right kind of stuff? Does that count? Does that not count? It's just, it's silliness. It's a dog chasing its tail. And so we'll go for another question that may be in our minds like, ooh, I, I really want to get the answer to this question next. Is it possible for a person to be saved and not do even a single act of mercy? Well the short answer is yes. Based on the answer to a previous question. Great, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It must not, cannot, will never depend on any, any, anything else. Ever. Is it possible? Yes, it is. One example might be think of think of the day of the crucifixion. There were there were three crosses, right? Three crosses. Jesus' cross was in the middle. And on either side, there were convicted criminals who knew they were guilty. One of those criminals, a thief, repented. Obviously, he was in no position to feed the hungry or visit the sick. He went, he went nowhere from that cross before he had breathed his last breath. And yet, the gospel accounts have caused us to believe, as the Lord meant for them to do, we believe that man went to paradise with Jesus just as Jesus said he would. And aren't we glad when Scripture provides a clear path to the short answer? Yes, absolutely. There's a not-so-short answer to that same question. The not-so-short answer is still yes, it is possible. The not-so-short part has to do with how we see acts of mercy or mercy works. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, there is a time coming when we will, we will fully know as we have been fully known. And, and in, with that truth, and in that truth, I'm confident in saying that when the dust settles and, and when we're seeing clearly, we're going to understand that some acts of mercy, some mercy works have been, Something other than what we expected. Think again about the thief on the cross, the repentant thief. Do you remember? He made an appeal to the man on the far side to repent. Maybe it was kind of maybe it was a little bit harsh. You know, he called out the man's sin and the fact that he was just as guilty as, as this other guy over here. He himself was. But but he made an appeal for the man to repent to repent. And not just to anybody or a general repentance, no, to the man in the middle. Think also that the repentant thief might have looked at Jesus and said, hey, looks like you only got breath in your body to save one more person. Won't you make it me instead of that clown on the far side? See that? There's an appeal for repentance. There's, there's, and when the repentant thief made his profession of faith in Christ, he made it in the hearing of the, the other man. I'm not talking about universalism here because the, the Bible clearly puts universalism, the whole idea that all you've got to do to get to heaven is die, it puts that under the rug, buries it, done, over. The Bible doesn't teach universalism. So I'm not talking about it. What I'm talking about is a genuine saving faith that works it out in ways that we might not expect. We will need to be attentive to one another so that we can encourage one another in those ways that are going to pop up and we didn't know they were coming. Please be ready for that. Meanwhile, Matthew 25, Jesus gives us all kinds of ways that we may absolutely expect. And these are ways that matter very much to him to the point that he's willing to separate sheep from goat based on what he's saying there in Matthew 25. These are ways that are close to his heart. So maybe in the time we have left this morning together, maybe we should get get clear on some of those ways. Like, why is it so important to Jesus that his brothers and sisters do acts of mercy? So here we go. I'll start with uh, the cobblestone statement of faith, Article 8, the last article of that document. And it begins with these words. We believe in the personal, visible, and imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ to this earth and the consummation of his kingdom. Every member of Cobblestone Community Church has signed on to that belief. If you didn't know, come see us. The Q&A, you'll light it right up if you ask questions about Article 8 in our statement of faith. Right. Jesus is coming back. Did you catch the word imminent? That comes from Scripture. The Lord's returning could be at any moment. Since we don't know how long this period is that we're living in, we don't know when it ends. Okay, so here's the question I want to ask, church. We know the king is returning. How much kingdom work do you suppose the king expects us to have done when he returns? By the time he returns? The answer from the New Testament most of it. Most of it. Jesus is forever and always sanctifying his bride, the church. When he comes again, it's going to be an oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah for his bride, the church, is going to be, yes, he's been working on us. If you're waiting for Jesus to do 99% of the sanctification of the church in the last 10 seconds, you're so far behind the curve. The king expects most of the kingdom work to be done by the time he gets back. Why else would the Holy Spirit have come? If we're just waiting, there's no need for the Holy Spirit. And yet Jesus went so far as to say it was better for him to go away and the Holy Spirit to come. Why? So we can be animated, directed, guided, filled up with the Holy Spirit for this this kingdom work. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, For to each, everybody who's in each, stick your hand in the air. Every each in the room. Come on, give me your hand. You're in each. You're in each. Did you also notice that in Matthew 25, it says... It says, as soon as I find it. And before him, him will get, be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another. How many ones are there in the room? Every one. Each. 1 Corinthians twelve seven says, For to, each is given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. Each. That's not just an intellectual assent to the idea of something like that happen. That is a get it done, boost on the ground, make it show manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It's going to happen. It's going to happen with each and every believer. If, if getting a tattoo is the only way you can remember 1 Corinthians 12, 7, sign up. Sign up, right? The pastor just asked you to get a tattoo. I'll get emails over that one, but we'll deal with those next week. All right. Every believer is going to have a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. What? What's yours? Where is it? If it hasn't come yet, don't stress. Just understand and trust that the Lord is going to be working this. Probably the best thing you can do at this point is be open and attentive. What's he going to do? What's he going to do next? All right, every believer, that's Bible. Is that not kingdom work in advance of the king's return? Absolutely it is. And we've already seen the king puts mercy at the top of his list, who? So we need to understand a couple of things. We need to probably understand a little bit more about uh, the spiritual gifts, and we need to understand a little bit more about, about mercy. Like the Lord's going to be talking to us to say today. So I'm going to ask: Is there such a thing as the spiritual gift of mercy? Anybody got Romans 12? Yeah, Romans 12, one of the recognized lists of the spiritual gifts we have in Scripture, says this, "...having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, here it comes, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness." the best kingdom work we will do will be in conjunction with our spiritual gifts. Please notice, I didn't say the easiest kingdom work we do. I said the best. Isn't it, it, it just blows my mind that at some point, God took the least merciful person I've ever known. I have yet to meet the person who's less merciful than I was. And the Holy Spirit apportioned to me the spiritual gift of mercy. <laughs> really? Acts of mercy done in, in, in the gift of, spiritual gift of mercy are, are marked, as the Scripture says, by, by cheerfulness. Cheerfulness because it's easy? Oh, no, no, no. Cheerfulness because the Lord is doing through me what I stand zero chance of doing on my own that's the cheerfulness sometimes the cheerfulness is I did not get shot at or stabbed and that's always a plus but basically, it's that. God's doing something through me that i have zero chance of doing on my own. That's how it rolls with, with the spiritual gift of mercy. Okay, well, let's look at uh, the other possible scenario. Maybe there are believers who don't have the spiritual gift of mercy. We know that there are various gifts in the, in the body of Christ, in the flock of this good shepherd, right? Not everybody's going to have the spiritual gift of mercy. That mean you're out. You Got to pass. Well, think about the logic that exists in Matthew 25. If the king were separating the sheep from the goats, he could have made that really simple by saying, hey, everybody with the spiritual gift of mercy, you're on my right. rest of y'all, hmm. But that's not what he said. He described what had been done. He didn't specify that it had to be done with a spiritual gift of mercy. And so in seeing that, I'm confident in making this statement. Not having the spiritual gift of mercy does not excuse a Christian from doing mercy works. One of my heroes here at the church is Rich Jarvey, one of my fellow elders. And and Rich has told this story out loud, so kind of handy he's out of town this week, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Right? Rich says he has taken, you've seen the spiritual gifts assessments? Oh my gosh. Rich has taken a bajillion of those. Not even once has mercy made a blip on the radar screen. Zero zilch flatline completely when it comes to mercy, and yet I see Rich doing acts of mercy all the time. So, so finally one day he he, he spoke out loud to a group of us, and he's got his strategy. Rich Jarvey, zero spiritual gift of mercy, says, "I hang out with people who have the spiritual gift of mercy, and I do what they do." Ha. Ha. Isn't that so simple? Isn't that so glorious? Love it. This church has only begun to see the extent of the mercy works God will do through us. We've done a few things for a long time, but God's going to open up new horizons, and he's going to open up some opportunities like we could not even have imagined. When that happens, as it happens, there's going to be a good handful of us who have spiritual gifts for those endeavors, and there's going to be an army of us who just do what they do. It's all it takes. Now, if that messes with your idea of what spiritual gifts are and how to use them, (laughs) I'm tickled to be the one who brought you some fresh insight on that subject. About four months ago, I heard a Christian brother describe It's got to be the best spiritual gifts assessment ever. Just for its pure simplicity. I call it the three-step, he didn't call this, I call it the the three-step spiritual gifts assessment. See the need, meet the need. Ask God if you did the right thing. Repeat. Step three is very important. I mean, what could it hurt? You keep asking the Lord if you're doing the right thing. He's not going to let you flail around in something that's ineffective. He wants you to do kingdom work, right? If he says, no, got something better, then you go on to the next thing. See the need, meet the need, ask the Lord if it did the right thing. This this sermon today is part one of a seven-part series. I'm not going to be on the platform the next six Sundays. What I mean is we're doing part one here in the sanctuary, and that's the only part we'll be doing here in the sanctuary The other six parts, as Kristen said, are going to happen in room 112, far end of the building, bare left, can't hardly miss it. If you get to the parking lot, (laughs) you went too far. Uh, That's where the other six are happening, beginning two weeks from today, February 20th, 9 a.m. Partly, yes, it'll be based on the book by Timothy Keller called Generous Justice. Subtitle is How God's Grace Makes Us Just. Just what? Just just, right? The church, my fervent hope and my constant prayer these days is that when we gather for that, for that teaching in the presence of God under the tutor, tutelage of his Holy Spirit, far more than the book, I pray, we're going to be learning what the Holy Spirit is saying to this church regarding mercy works. I have no doubt that there are some of us in this room right now who are completely clear about God's calling on a life as it regards mercy works, I'm happy for all three of you. The rest of us need to be in room 112 two weeks from today, 9 a.m. sharp. Please, right? I'm not an expert on the spiritual gifts, but there are two things I can tell you for certain about them. One, I already said, every Christian has at least one. The other thing I can tell you for certain is every spiritual gift the Holy Spirit bestows serves one common purpose. Come take the class and I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> that, may, that may be extortion. I don't know. Anyway, we'll find out in a couple of weeks. We've seen in the all of that discourse that mercy is a big deal to Jesus. It is so important for him. What we haven't, dug into quite yet today, is why it is so important to him. And don't we want to know, don't we want to know why? What's up with these mercy works? So in the last few minutes, let's dig into the why. If I ask you to yell out all the reasons for doing mercy works, just yell out, we might come up with something like to bring relief, to show compassion, to fill a temporary gap. If you're really honest, you might, act, might even say to do it better than somebody else is doing it now. Church, I've done mercy works for all of those reasons, including the last one and many, many more. And I can tell you from firsthand experience and the experience of some co-laborers in the work, for every reason you find, there will be a hundred barriers At times, the very people you serve will give you more than enough reasons to not. There will always be a reason to stop or not even get started. That's why it's so important for us to know why this is important to Jesus. We gotta plow through the disappointment and the discouragement. They will be waiting for you at every turn. So so we gotta have that mind of Christ, right? And find out why this is so important to him. Therefore, I'm going to give you the two best reasons for doing mercy works. The first one is this. Mercy mirrors salvation. Every Christian in the room, you didn't deserve salvation. That's me too. You didn't earn it. But as a recipient of God's grace, every one of us is called to be a grace merchant. In Jesus' name. When Jesus sent his disciples out for the first time, Matthew 10, 8, he said to them, Freely you have received, freely give. That's it. Since there is no bottom to that grace barrel, there's no need to, no need to hoard it. it. It's meant to get out. You know, there are, there are other religions, there are false religions that say, if you live rightly, then you will gain the favor of whatever false god they've set up, Christianity has it the right way around. The grace and the favor come first. The deal is, move it along, move it along, move it along. That's the thing. The other religions can can do what what they do, right? But for us, move it along. No need to hoard it. Saved people are compelled by God's grace to show mercy. The second thing, the other best reason for doing mercy works is mercy honors the image of God in humanity. I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm pretty sure it'll sound silly at first. If I'm a fool for Jesus, I can't think of any better reason. Have you ever wondered why when God came to be among us, he came as a human being? How else would he come? We're made in the image of God. Why would he come as something else? We know there have been false religions that worship animals. The bear, the eagle, the dragon. Something fierce and mysterious, right? Something that's almost beyond human or better or I don't know. But the one true God came as a human being. Now wait, he came not just as a human being, he came as a newborn infant. You know the king of the... The king of the universe came through the birth canal, nursed at his mother's breast, learned to walk and talk. The king of the universe did not take any shortcuts in humanity. Has it ever occurred to you what a profound experiment that has been for all the rest of us, for all of the human race, He came as a human being so we could demonstrate how we would treat one of our own. There's no way you cannot notice that in Matthew 25, Jesus sees each one of these acts of mercy done or not done as done or not done to him personally. Proverbs 4.13 puts it this way. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. And now you know why it is so important to Jesus that his brothers and sisters show mercy. My mission in this church, as I understand it, is to plant that idea permanently in your Christian consciousness. The Lord has so much more to teach us. but my job is to plant that idea. My assignment given to me, given to me by no joke Jesus, is to begin to bring you to a place where you eat, sleep, live and breathe mercy. Or you pray mercy, or you do mercy. Where it is almost your reflex action. we get going on that class in two weeks. I I would be honored to help us all get a good jump start on that. The Lord wants us to plow through the distractions, and yeah, the excuses and get to the kingdom work, the, the things that he gave so much weight in Scripture. I remember coming back from uh, that first trip to Sandburg, Tennessee. We were doing tornado relief, and that was, the, that was the smaller crew. And one of the fellows on the crew, Dan Wagner, he says, you know, we've got to get practiced up and, and tooled up for this, so, you know, we're, we're more ready the next time. He said, and I remember him saying this, he said, because you know, The third world is our backyard in any given moment. And he's right. And beyond a natural catastrophe, natural disaster like that was, the third world is your backyard. To the point that I would say, if we're not seeing the chances to do mercy, we must not want to see them. Take that right there and pick up on these mercy works in the power of the Holy Spirit and according to the word of our Lord. I mean, how humble was he? I've noticed in, in a couple of couple of Bible school books, there's this thing called the humility of Christ. And, and I remember, Andrew, used the chart one day. It's been a, a year or two ago, maybe. It's been a while. And, right, so you have the king of the universe who decides he's going to be a human. He's going to be the one true God and the one who comes and, 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 and is among the people. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So there's this chart in, like, uh, systematic theologies that you, that you might pick up. And it begins with, with God exalted, and then there's this, it starts this plummet. Of, of humility, and it begins with a birth, and it begins with being reviled and rejected and having his words said they were false. You know, at one point, the people said Jesus had a demon, said that to the king of the universe, right? And this humility just plummets and plummets and plummets, and it bottoms out at the point of the crucifixion and death and burial of Jesus. What can that be except a call for us to enter with him in humility, to be little J Jesus's, to get into that same work that is so important to him? Thank you for joining us today. If you need prayer for anything, you can email us at prayer at or you can go on our website at www.cobblestonechurch.com and submit it there. We'd love to pray for you. Have a great week, and God bless.